Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federalist Society's webinar call. Today, March 8th, we discuss opioid litigations and public nuisance, updates from California, Oklahoma, and Ohio. My name is Guy DeSantis, and I'm Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the expert on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have with us John Shu, professor, attorney, and legal commentator. Throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them through the question and answer feature so that our speaker will have access to them for when we get to that portion of the webinar. With that, thank you for being with us today. John, the floor is yours. Thank you, Guy, and thank you all for uh, joining us today on this discussion about the opioid litigation. We've had quite a bit happen in the past two weeks. Um, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with the litigation overall, starting around 2014, certain municipalities, and meaning counties in California, started to sue the opioid manufacturers, distributors, and then later on the pharmacies. Probably the three largest bellwether cases uh, were in California, Oklahoma, and Ohio. The Oklahoma and California cases were state level litigations. And then the Ohio case was a very large MDL. Judge Dan Polster was the district court judge. Uh, and that Ohio case involved the pharmacies, CVS, Walgreens, uh, Rite Aid, Giant Eagle, Walmart, um, I should say that the, in the Ohio case, before it went to trial, Giant Eagle, which is a regional grocery store chain that has pharmacies in it, and uh, Rite Aid, based out of the wonderful town of Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, uh, decided to uh, settle the case before trial. The main issue, legal issue, around these cases is what's commonly known as a public nuisance. Public nuisance is something that has been around since the English common law. First time we really have any written record of it in the English common law is around 1536. At that time, public nuisance was something that really if something was interfering on the king's property, which was essentially almost everything, uh, and it was interfering with the public, uh, that was considered a public nuisance. Now, over the years in the United States, uh, various states and even certain cities or municipalities have put into their statutes or ordinances uh, actual definition of public nuisance, but they're all essentially the same. Uh, the history of public nuisance indicates that it was usually tied to some kind of land use or property. So, for example, it would be something that mm, maybe something that interfered with a lake, a public roadway, uh, maybe something that was a building. So for example, uh, a building that uh, was emitting noxious fumes or dumping sewage into a public uh, waterway, river. Uh, now, however, starting in around 1999, 1998, 1999, uh, like many bad things during the Clinton administration, the fact of the matter is that public, the tort bar, the plaintiff's bar, 
began to use and try to stretch public nuisance uh, in, in ways that really it was never designed to do. In other words, we've had product liability. Uh, we've had false or deceptive advertising or marketing, uh, which by the way, is not protected by the First Amendment, although people have tried to claim First Amendment protections. They tried to stretch that out starting with cigarettes. And uh, you may remember from all those years ago during the Clinton administration, you had state attorneys general, perhaps the most famous of them at the time was Mike Moore from Mississippi, uh, in coordination with the Justice Department. And they settled with tobacco companies. At that time, it was still called Philip Morris, uh, not Altria. Uh, Philip Morris, BAT, et cetera, et cetera. And it was like a two, $246 billion settlement which was the largest in history and still is. Um, but over the years, the plaintiff's attorneys have used public nuisance for all kinds of fields. They've used it for lead paint. Uh, not too long ago in 2018 from a ConAgra versus the people of California, uh, ConAgra filed for certiorari. They petitioned for certiorari because they were found to have been liable for lead paint under a public nuisance theory, uh, that the court denied that petition in 2018. But I think the, the petitioners at that time, they made it very clear mm, that public nuisance was as a misused and misinterpreted theory of tort was being expanded way beyond for what it should be. And if allowed to stand, would continue to go even further. So. But we've tried to, we've seen cases where they've seen lead paint global warming or climate change. In other words, if you're a natural gas or oil producer, uh, you were creating a public nuisance that either led to false or deceptive marketing or false or misleading statements or omissions, a securities case. Those cases were struck down. You saw Eric Schneiderman uh, in New York, who was the former attorney general, at that time, who had to step down because of <clears throat> his personal proclivities. Uh, but Letitia James tried to continue it. She didn't get very far. Mm, you see, you've seen it with uh, firearms. In other words, uh, that the existence, the mere existence of firearms created a public nuisance in the increase in crime, the costs involved with uh, having to help save people who are gunshot victims, cost to police, the society, decrease in property values, et cetera. Uh, by the way, as a note, in the firearms cases, you'll note that they all begin with Beretta. So it would be something like, for example, the city of Cincinnati versus Beretta USA at Al. It's not because it's necessarily Beretta that was uh, targeted. All the fire major firearms manufacturers were targeted. It's just that Beretta is the B, so that's why they chose Beretta. I've had students ask me why it's always Beretta. They must stink. That's not the case. Uh, I think we'll, and now we've uh, progressed beyond that to now opioids. And the opioid situation is even more complex than the other ones because you have the entire supply chain being sued. So you have the manufacturers, uh, probably the most infamous is the Purdue Pharma, which is now in bankruptcy and the Sackler family, but also Johnson Johnson, um, McKesson, all those other ones. 
you have uh, the distributors. And then most recently in Ohio, you have the pharmacies. So all up and down the supply chain. The other th one thing that is very similar to the lead paint and the firearms is that the opioid industry is heavily regulated. Obviously, there's federal regulation through the DEA and the FDA, but also every state has some kind of regulation through it. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the California opioid litigation, where uh, the trial judge in Orange County, California, Judge Peter Wilson, uh, noted as part of his uh, opinion ruling against the plaintiff's attorney, that in California, there's actually a, a series of state statutes that encourage, encourage uh, the availability of opioids for terminal cancer patients, amputees, uh, just in general patients who are suffering from either acute severe pain or chronic debilitating pain. And generally speaking, the policy there was designed to help uh, these patients and to make sure that the patient doctor, that the state was not inserting itself too much into the patient doctor relationship. So now uh, with respect to the Oklahoma case, there's been a lot that was made of the fact that uh, the Oklahoma Supreme Court last fall uh, ruled against the plaintiff's attorneys when the trial court had, you know, pretty, pretty firmly ruled in favor of them. Uh, but in the Oklahoma case and several other states, that case has uh, settled. And it, I don't think this, all the documents have been signed yet, but starting last year in 2021, uh, the, the parties came to uh, a term sheet, if you will, of $21 billion. Um, the problem was at that time that the manufacturers wanted, understandably, uh, a critical, what they called a critical mass of states and municipalities to sign on such that they wouldn't be then litigating again and again and again. So the final settlement as reported was something around 26 billion dollars. Uh, and out of that 26, 2.3 reportedly has been set aside specifically for attorney's fees and costs. Uh, and in case anybody thinks that's a lot of money, last year in 2021, at Wachtell Lipton, profits per partner were 7.5 million. And average revenue per lawyer was 3.6 million. Well, Wachtell is only like 210 attorneys. So a $2.3 billion payday out of one set of cases, that's pretty good. That settlement does not include uh, the settlement with the Native American tribes at approximately 575 million. And it doesn't include individual settlements with individual states. We've seen numbers around 80 million, uh, 75 million, et cetera, et cetera. I should say that in the in the Oklahoma case, originally, the trial judge had ordered $475 million in damages. The plaintiff's attorneys were not happy with that. The way that the trial judge got to 475 in Oklahoma is he calculated that 475 million was one year of abatement costs to the state of Oklahoma. Whereas the plaintiff's attorneys wanted something more along the lines of 20 years 
worth of abatement costs or 9.3 billion, having nothing to do with the fact their contingency fee would be much higher. That's just an absolute coincidence on, on their part. At any rate, uh, this, the settlement is 26 billion. Johnson & Johnson has agreed to pay five. The other uh, manufacturers will put in 21. Johnson & Johnson by far the largest of the manufacturers, even though they don't uh, produce, sell, distribute, market uh, opioids anymore. The opioids, the main opioid that was from Johnson Johnson that was at, at issue was their uh, fentanyl patch, duralgesic patch, uh, which was again, specifically designed for cancer patients uh, and um, uh, other terminal end stage patients. Now, I mentioned before that there is a common law definition of public nuisance. Uh, more than that, there's also every, you know, individual state statutes. I'm going to just go over very quickly what some of these statutes are. And the reason is, be is because I feel it's, it's important. For example, in certain states, you'll see that it refers only to the public, but in other states, they'll, def they'll specifically define that it doesn't have to be the general public. It only has to be a certain number of people or, or a, a sizable number of people. And so I think the plaintiff's lawyers were very smart in choosing um, certain states to act as bellwether states. And I can tell you that it made a lot of sense for them to go through the, uh, uh, the state statutes as it were. Uh, generally speaking, a public nuisance um, is when somebody unlawfully interferes with the public's right to use public land or water, or when someone uses his land to intentionally engage in illegal activity and disturbs the public access to or use of nearby land or water. Now, almost all the states distinguish between public nuisance and private nuisance. Um, individual plaintiffs, Mr. or Mrs. Smith generally don't have the standing to raise a public nuisance case. Uh, and what they try to raise a private nuisance case, meaning whatever, let's, let's say there's a factory that's spewing sewage into the river, they've got to show that, that they, as individual plaintiffs, are affected in a different way or significantly worse than the rest of the community. Well, that's hard to do, number one. And number two, uh, it doesn't provide a significant recovery for the, the contingency lawyers. I mean, you're only talking about one or two people or maybe a family, and that's not helpful. The problem with the public nuisance, as you can see from the definition, uh, what happens is that it's the government. No, not the federal government, the state, county, or, or municipal government that sues to protect the public's common right to access or use the land, the water. And then what they do is they ask, ask the court, not for damages, you know, in a product liability, defect, false advertising case, you have specific damages. No, no, no. Here you're asking for an injunction. You're asking the court to enjoin the illegal activity. Dear company X, knock off the sewage dumping or be held in contempt, et cetera, et cetera. However, where does the money come in? The money comes in in abatement costs. So how much does it cost to clean up the river, uh, the land, get rid of the, the demolition material, the detritus, et cetera, et cetera. 
So what has happened with opioids, as with the firearms and the uh, lead paint, and of course the cigarettes, we have an, a, a, a sad situation where the plaintiff's attorneys are literally in cahoots with the municipalities uh, and, and the states. By the way, uh, from time to time, I may interchange state and municipality, but I think you all know what I mean. So in, instead of having uh, by name, yes, it's the attorney general or the county uh, council or the city attorney, but really it's the plaintiff's attorneys that are doing it and they have an agreement with the states and municipalities that they will uh, receive some amount of money. So for example, in the recent settlement with Johnson & Johnson and the other manufacturers, it's 2.3 billion for the plaintiff's attorneys alone. That's theirs. The state, that, that doesn't go to the states or the people or anything like that. Traditionally, under public nuisance, the items of the public nuisance, the manufacturer of those items are not liable for the public nuisance. So for example, one common public nuisance are illegal gambling locations, illegal gambling rings, illegal gambling uh, uh, games or circles. Well, if a, a group of criminals decides to use a particular piece of property at the corner of you know, Lexington and 40s, 42nd and Lex as an illegal gambling ring, do you, does that mean that the manufacturer of the cards or the manufacturer of the dice, would they be held liable? Could they be sued under public nuisance? Well, traditionally the answer is no, because number one, they have no control over how people use their otherwise legal products. Um, and I would note for the record that playing cards and dice are much less regulated in terms of manufacturing than opioids or firearms. So, but you, you know, the municipality would, would sue the building owner, especially if you knew that this stuff was going on. Maybe they would, there are some localities that have gang injunctions. Uh, California tried this until it was deemed to be politically unpopular. Well, I should say politically popular for everyday citizens, politically unpopular with certain special interest groups. So yeah, you could, you could enjoin the criminal organization and join the gangs, uh, enjoin the, the players. You could enjoin the players if you could show that they were regular players that were contributing to the public nuisance. But the dice makers or the card makers, how about the guy who made, the company who made the felt tables uh, or the chairs? Couldn't have a gambling ring without them or the chips, assuming there were chips. Anyway, uh, so that's one of the problems that I have with uh, extending public nuisance to things like firearms and opioids, because it's, they're both such highly regulated industries at both the federal and the state levels, and not just at the manufacturing point, but the distribution, uh, the sale, um, and there's, there's also third parties that are involved. With opioids, for example, you can't, you can't just go somewhere and, and, and buy opioids. They're considered schedule two drugs. You have to have a prescription uh, from an actual physician. And so there's a lot of intervening factors between the alleged abuse of opioids and the, the manufacturer in the context of a public nuisance. 
So, but a lot of the states and a lot of the attorney generals uh, that got involved, you know, you would think, well, they're Republicans. Some of them might even be Federalists. Uh, they should follow an originalist, textualist reading. Yeah, that's that's not the case. That didn't happen. Uh, we've had cases like uh, where Mark Hunter in Oklahoma, probably the most famous, um, you know, Hunter uh, pushed pushed it pretty hard. And um, until where he had to resign because of his personal proclivities, um, you know, he was a real leader uh, in uh in, in pushing, pushing the, uh, the opioid cases through. So it isn't, it really isn't a, re, a Republican Democrat thing. And it's a, certainly not a originalist, non-originalist thing. Perhaps it should be, but really it's a money or not money thing. Uh, and I suppose from that, uh, you, you could understand, you know, why there's so much involved. Um, there's so much money that it's really hard for a state to, uh, to turn it down. And, you know, and, and, uh, and especially when you have broad statutes. So for example, in West Virginia, and West Virginia has been hit harder than a lot of states with the opioid crisis. I mean, we, you talk about the Appalachian states, uh, states like also California, uh, Oklahoma, I mean, in Pennsylvania, Ohio, especially, I mean, there's, there's states all over the union that have been afflicted by opioid overdoses. However, they, those stats don't really distinguish between opioids that come from prescriptions and opioids that come from either China illegally or over the border illegally. For example, there's a, there's a big difference between a prescription opioid like fentanyl versus fentanyl that comes over the border and is made in some laboratory in rural Mexico or rural China or even rural India. Anyway, having said that, here's the West Virginia definition of public nuisance. A public nuisance is anything which annoys or disturbs the free use of one's property or which renders its ordinary use or physical occupation uncomfortable. A nuisance is anything which interferes with the rights of a citizen either in person, property, the enjoyment of his property or his comfort. And a condition is a nuisance when it clearly appears that enjoyment of property is materially lessened and the physical comfort of person in their homes is materially interfered thereby. Now that's, that's a pretty broad definition, but that's not even the, the worst of it. I mean, there's, there's definitions where you're just talking about the general comfort uh, of, uh, of the people. So, for example, in California, which probably has one of the largest uh, or broadest uh, definitions that I've seen, but it's a two-part uh, it's two-part definition. So, California Civil Code thirty-four seventy-nine: anything which is injurious to health, including but not limited to the illegal sale of controlled substances, or is indecent or offensive to the senses or an obstruction to the free use of property so as to interfere with the comfortable enjoyment of life or property or unlawfully obstructs the free passage or use in the customary manner of any navigable lake, river, bay, stream, canal, basin, or any public park, square, street, or highway is considered a nuisance. Uh, 
And then a public nuisance is one which affects at the same time an entire community or neighborhood or any considerable number of persons. That's the, that's the catchphrase that you're looking for, where you don't have to have the whole community uh, or neighborhood affected. Any considerable number of persons, considerable, by the way, is never defined. I've never seen a state uh, that defines what considerable is. Considerable number of persons, although the extent of the annoyance or damage inflicted upon individuals may be unequal. Well, that's, uh, that's a problem. Uh, that's, that's a very broad definition, um, and it literally says anything. So uh, where, where do we see this going in the future? In other words, what's the big deal? You know, they settled the case. There's still the Ohio verdict out there. The jury in the Ohio MDL uh, found the remaining pharmacies to be liable for a public nuisance and uh, false and deceptive uh, procedures, marketing, whatever. And I understand the people that are in the defense bar would say, well, you know, Judge Polster made a lot of errors and all this other jazz. Yes, he probably did. Are they reversible? Well, it's dependent on the Sixth Circuit, obviously. Um, but it, it, it wouldn't surprise me if the remaining pharmacies uh, came to a decision, especially after the Johnson and Johnson settlement. You know, I don't, I don't know. Based on the Ohio's, on what's happening in Ohio, I don't know. It may be worth it to sell it once and for all, as Rite Aid and um, and Giant Eagle did, because I guarantee you they settled for a lot less than the jury verdict. So that's not uh, that's not unknown. But as I've said, they we've seen oil, natural gas global warming or climate change, uh, guns, lead paint. Well, now you say, well, that's what's left. You know, what's left? You can't do, you can't do gambling casinos. Why not? Well, because gambling casinos are, number one, heavily regulated. And you say, well, that doesn't matter because firearms and opioids are heavily regulated. Yeah, but you very rarely see public nuisances around the, the gambling casino. And number two, gambling casinos hire an awful lot of unionized labor. I'm sure that's just a coincidence. So it's unlikely that they'll be, they'll be sued. I will have to say that I don't, I don't see industries like the solar power industry uh, or anything like that uh, being sued by the large plaintiff's firms. But when they say anything, I'd really be, I'd really be fascinated to see what about piles of masks? Um, do you sue the mask manufacturers for not properly disposing of them? I mean, if you stretch the definition, you know, they're one of the firearms cases in Cincinnati, the Ohio Supreme Court, the trial court had said, yeah, this is a stretch. But the Ohio Supreme Court said, no, 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 uh, it's, it's enough to go beyond a, a motion to dismiss. You see, and the firearms company says, yeah, but we're, we're really regulated. Like, there's no, there's no way that we should be responsible for what a criminal does or even a group of criminals do with our stuff. We follow the law when we make it. We follow the law when we distribute it. We follow the law when we ship it. And we ensure that the retailers follow the law as well. And they said, yeah, but you didn't follow the law when it comes to deceptive marketing. Well, that, 
<laughs> deceptive marketing is really a judicial decision, isn't it? It's not a statutory or, or other decision. And so that becomes a problem. Well, uh, very recently we had uh, employees who sued companies for COVID as a public nuisance. Uh, so for example, in Pennsylvania, you and in Chicago, uh, we had we saw employees of McDonald's and Amazon sue uh, for a public nuisance. In other words, they said that the uh, that COVID nineteen is a public nuisance, and that the company is either remaining open as they were allowed to do as an essential company, or in in the as a failure to take certain steps to protect the workers are a public nuisance. Now, the cases themselves haven't gotten very far. And that's really because the judges have said, well, this is kind of a workers' compensation issue, not really a public nuisance issue. Um, except that that's kind of how it started also with the lead paint and the cigarettes, which were the first industries to be sued by public nuisance. In other words, in the beginning, the judges were extremely skeptical. We're kind of like, well, this really is a product defect issue or product liability issue, not a public nuisance issue. But as the as the lawsuits keep coming and you the plaintiffs attorneys were able to find friendly judges, many of whom they donated to. Again, just a coincidence though, that's no nothing there. Um, that became a real problem. So we saw McDonald's and Amazon, and then uh, probably in, those are in local courts, but uh, perhaps the most famous of the federal uh, lawsuits about COVID-19 and public nuisance is Smithfield. So Smithfield Foods, Inc. in the uh, Western District of Mississippi. Uh, the, the, it wasn't even a, the employees per se. It was a special interest group the Rural Community Workers Alliance, that they claimed that they represented the workers. We never found out how many workers they actually represent. But the Rural Community Workers Alliance sued Smithfield's food in federal court, claiming a public nuisance. Uh, the judge did dismiss the case, again, based on uh, uh, OSHA uh, and administrative law issues, as opposed to the court trying to go ahead with the public nuisance case. Um, but again, and that was in Milan, Missouri, not Milan, Italy. Too bad for the plaintiffs. Uh, I think um, I think we're going to just I think we're going to see more and more of it. I, I just don't see how if even even if all the opioid supply chain defendants from top to bottom, even if they settle and there's no there's this mismatch of legal precedents. Some at the trial level, some at the state supreme court level, some at the federal level. I, I just don't I, I, I just don't see that the that it's going to stop. You know, there have there have been certain cases uh, in 2011. Justice Ginsburg, may she rest in peace, wrote 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 the opinion in American Electric Power Company versus the state of Connecticut. And there you had uh, carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, really, the opinion wasn't so much about public nuisance per se, she only mentioned public nuisance once, but that was, a, that was one, of the, one of the main claims that the plaintiff's attorneys uh, pushed. Now, Justice Ginsburg really, the opinion was really more about the Clean Air Act um, and the EPA uh, action, but that was definitely part of it. 
And then uh, we've had other, uh, in the ConAgra case, as I mentioned, the Supreme Court denied certiorari. This was in the fall of 2018. Our, our friend Paul Clement, uh, who at the time, he was with Kirkland and Ellis, uh, Paul uh, represented the represented ConAgra. And what was interesting to me was the alleged deceptive advertising was from a single pamphlet in 1931. And by 2018, Congress, I mean, ConAgra had nothing to do with lead paint at all. As a matter of fact, when we talk about ConAgra, nobody ever thinks about lead paint. Literally, its name is ConAgra. So, you know, that, and that was here in California. Um, I just think these, these cases are going to continue. And I think they're going to find new industries and new reasons to try and keep pushing and expanding the uh, definition of public uses. You'll notice that most of the jurisdictions, by the way, are either states or counties, even though many municipalities have their own uh, definitions of public nuisance. And of course, uh, they are, most of them that I've seen are, are in harmony with the state, but uh, why not represent cities? Well, you know, really you're, you're better off if you can represent the state through the attorney general, again, regardless of whatever party, if you can convince him or her that uh, the monetary the monetary remuneration allegedly for abatement uh, is uh, is worth it. One last example before we turn to questions in the uh, in the Johnson Johnson settlement, there's you know all, there are a certain amount of money is supposed to be for hospitals and a certain amount of money is supposed to be for treatment programs and whatnot. Okay, here's the thing in other situations where you've had sue and settle kind of deals, uh, there's, no, there's no prohibition against you for a, a municipality or a state using that money to fund so-called nonprofits or special interest groups in doing the abatement. So in other words, if a group like, uh, I don't know, this Trumbull County Opioid Rehab Center, Inc., a 501C whatever, if they can take the money that's supposed to be for abatement or treatment, but they don't have to use all of it for treatment. They can use some of it to lobby, or let me rephrase that. There's no restriction that I can see against them using to lobby their elected officials for other things in the future. To me, that's problematic. So when the public reporting on this, and I understand they, they all have a certain limitation on time or space uh, in their publications or broadcasts, I get that. But the fact of the matter is that there's no, there doesn't appear to be, even in the settlements, a guarantee uh, that 100% of the money that's supposed to be used for abatement, which is, I mean, you're not collecting, dam the, the municipalities are not connect collecting damages as in a product liability, you're collecting abatement. It really, if you're gonna collect all that money and you're gonna claim it's for opioid abatement, it really should go to opioid abatement, period. Whether it's uh, treatment or a police, EMT, whatever. Um, but I suspect with the opioid settlements, as with other settlements in the past, some of that money is going to go towards community groups, uh, so-called community groups, and um, and they tend they tend to they tend to lean strongly left in their political leanings, and they're not afraid to use that money 
uh, as they should. So with that, I think uh, let's turn to questions. Yes, it looks like we have a few in the uh, Q&A. We have one question. Do you think there is a federal substantive due process challenge to these public nuisance claims? Well, there could be. Uh, that actually, uh, and it's a good question. Uh, ConAgra through Paul Clement brought that up in its cert petition. Uh, the, the heart of, the, of that particular substantive due process claim was that they're using aggregate evidence. And in the opioid cases, they're all aggregate evidence. Now you say, well, what's aggregate evidence? I don't understand. Okay. Well, instead of, instead of proving that a particular set of plaintiffs or a, a particular group of plaintiffs suffered exact damage, uh, you just say, well, in the aggregate, the regression analysis, the statistical analysis shows that uh, Johnson Johnson or Purdue started making opioids in uh, 2011 or whatever. And ever since then, there's been a climb in opioid overdoses and opioid deaths. Therefore, they're liable. Now, that's kind of a problem uh, because there's no specific evidence or proof. The, in the Ohio case, uh, the pharmacy specifically said, the judge, the plaintiffs have not been able to point to any specific prescription that was illegally written or, or used, what are we supposed to do? You know, we can't, we can't as, as pharmacists, we're not supposed to interfere with uh, the patient-doctor relationship. As a matter of fact, certain state statutes don't specifically don't allow us to do that. So uh, unless they can point to a, a specific set of prescriptions that were bad, I don't really think we should be responsible for a public nuisance. Well, that didn't fly with Judge Polster. He, uh, he looked at the ag aggregate evidence. He, he specifically ruled that it should be admitted. It should be used. And he, he used it in, his, in, uh, in instructing the jury. And uh, the damages phase, abatement phase, is going to happen uh, sometime later this spring. And I, I, I can practically guarantee you that he's going to mention the aggregate evidence uh, as part of that, part of that information. The other problem I think with the aggregate evidence is it doesn't distinguish between legal opioids and illegal opioids. In other words, it, yes, there may have been uh, an increase in opioids, but it's been in, the, in overdoses, if you start looking at 1991, which is when the, the, the data was being kept by HHS and whatnot, it increases every single year. Sackler family wasn't, really wasn't involved at that time. It's not to say they're good people. I don't, I don't know them. I'm just saying that the data shows that there's year over year since 91, there's always been increases in, uh, in, in overdoses and abuse. So that's a real problem I have with aggregate evidence. It's a tough sell in terms of a, in terms of a due process claim, but it's certainly something that they should pursue. Again, though, it's, that's one of the reasons why the plaintiff's attorneys chose public nuisance as opposed to a straight on uh, deceptive marketing or, or product liability claim. Guy, let's go to the next question. question. Yeah, um, this one is from earlier, and they asked, if a manufacturer, distributor, or pharmacy settles, what prevents them from being sued again by other states, government entities, counties, departments, individual plaintiffs, et cetera? Well, that's 
that was one of the sticking points when Johnson Johnson mentioned it uh, or first announced that they had come to a term sheet. I should say Johnson and Johnson at Al. It, it wasn't just Johnson Johnson, but because they were the biggest in terms, both in terms of size and revenue, uh, it's really been named the Johnson Johnson settlement. So that was a concern, you know, they didn't, and even to this day, there are still states, West Virginia, Alabama, uh, Washington state that were, that are reluctant to join in, uh, into that settlement. So I think, you know, it's, 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 it's important for the settling defendant, settling company to make sure, Hey, this is a, so it's kind of like the tobacco litigation, you know, this is a one-time deal. And it's for everybody. In other words, if you can't get everybody to sign on, then forget about it because it's not worth it. So uh, it's very, again, very similar to the to the litigation in, in that we saw in the tobacco companies in the during the Clinton administration. Yeah. So that's uh, that's a it's a very good question, and it's it's really incumbent upon them. The, the other thing is that the payments are spread out over time. Probably not the plaintiffs. Attorneys part of that though, that's probably a lump sum. But the, uh, the, the payments to the municipalities and the states are spread out over time. And that's, uh, even the judge in the, the trial judge in the Oklahoma case, you know, and, I mean, the, the plaintiffs were asking for like 20 bills and the judge was like, eh. so he, 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 he gave, the trial judge gave them one year's worth of abatement, $475, $475 million, sorry. And uh, combined with all the other settlements, it was well over a billion at that time. And the plaintiff's attorney was like, no, 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 this is no good. Like, we need at least 20 years worth of abatement. 20 years? All right. I mean, you know, that didn't happen. Of course, Oklahoma Supreme Court overturned it. But, you know, but the settlement, you know, a $26 billion settlement for everybody, that's, that's a lot. I mean, that's, that's more than 20 years. Thank you for that question. Uh, another one from earlier, do the states follow any set procedures in hiring private plaintiff lawyers or do campaign contributions come into play? Well, I'm sure that the elected state attorneys general would tell you that campaign contributions from the plaintiff's bar have nothing, nothing to do with the decision to hire or not hire a plaintiff's firm in going after a particular industry. Every state has its own procedure. Every state has its own political needs and desires. And I'm sympathetic to the extent that, you know, there really is a problem. And this predates the Biden administration. It predates, I mean, it, it's been going on for a long time. It, it predates the Trump administration. I mean, it's again, it's not a Republican or Democrat thing. But the, at the same time, it's it's hard for me to be overly sympathetic because you have these problems of the illegal stuff coming in. You know, I think Johnson and Johnson, as part of evidence, introduced the fact that in terms of overdoses, uh, opioid overdoses, like ninety-five to ninety-seven percent of overdoses were from illegal opioids, the illegal fentanyl, the illegal oxy or whatever. It wasn't the stuff that they were, that they made or prescribed because they all have chemical tagants in them that you can, that you can tell if you bother to do the analysis. 
I think that was actually a, to me, that's, that's a pretty good argument from a policy side. You know, they're really, they're not the ones that are responsible for, uh, to this extent, to a public nuisance extent. Now, and also the law already exists uh, to hold them responsible. If, if a pharmacist is in cahoots with a, a, a bad doctor, a dirty doctor, and they're in cahoots and just, you know, uh, enabling or helping pill mills crank out prescriptions to everybody who has like a, a sprained toenail. There's already federal and state law to step in and fix that and hold those who, who do that kind of behavior accountable. Well, the problem is from the plaintiff's bar's perspective, there's no money in that. I mean, that's, that's a, generally a criminal action. And it's also an administrative action if they want to yank the pharmacies or pharmacists license and the doctor's medical license. But there's no there's no money in that. Just like there wouldn't be enough money uh, in a in a straight up product defect or product liability case with respect to these opioids. I mean, when Johnson Johnson made these opioids, you know, they're, I mean, they're pretty careful about doing it. Whereas if if some cartel guy in the hinterlands of whatever country is making uh, illegal fent synthetic fentanyl or other opioids. I mean, he, he could be using all kinds of contaminated stuff. Uh, and that, I mean, that is, <laughs> that's a criminal law issue. That's a public policy issue. You know, what do you do? Do you secure the border? Do you, I mean, there, but there's all kinds of things you can do, but suing companies using public nuisance and intentionally trying to, expand the meaning of public nuisance way beyond what it was intended to do. That's just not the right, that's not the right thing to do. I would also add that it's important, I think, for the judges. I mean, well, if you look at the transcripts from Judge Polster, uh, starting from the beginning of the pharmacy cases in Ohio, I mean, it's pretty clear. He made it really clear that he was pushing for a settlement. I mean, I, he might as well just held the pharmacies in contempt and say, listen, I'm putting your CEOs in contempt, pack your toothbrushes until you guys settle. I mean, he really, really, really pushed hard. Some might say excessively hard for a settlement. And, you know, again, I, I get it. You know, that there's a lot of states that uh, have uh, this opioid crisis. I mean, even the defendants in all their pleadings, I've never seen a defendant, an opioid defendant, claim that there's no opioid problem in the United States. I mean, that's, that's just a given. I don't even know why the judges have to mention that in their opinions. It's a given. Everybody stipulates there's an opioid crisis. The problem is what kind of opioid? The illegal opioids? Or, you know, and then heroin, by the way, is considered an opioid. Pharmacies just don't dish out heroin. <laughs> but you can find it easily in Portland, L.A., New York, it's definitely San Francisco. I mean, have you, come on, you can find heroin anywhere, but that's considered an opioid overdose. It's not clear to me how Johnson Johnson is responsible for heroin or for the cartels putting fentanyl in the black tar heroin. It's just not clear to me. So anyway, that's a, a good question from uh, Howard. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, our next one is, what are the obstacles to public nuisance suits against state and municipal governments arising from their enforcement of COVID-19 lockdowns and vaccine mandates? 
Well, it depends on what you mean by obstacles. I mean, if, if you're talking about defenses, uh, I think the ones that have worked so far are just basically to say, well, if you're going to sue us for keeping our businesses open and then claim that our COVID-19 protocols weren't, were a public nuisance, in other words, were insufficient to the point they were public nuisance. Well, you really, that's a workers' comp slash OSHA slash, I don't know, maybe EPA issue. It's not really a public nuisance issue. And also, it's not clear as to uh, what, is the, what is the public right that's being interfered. Uh, in other words, you, know, you, you have to have some kind of public good or public right. Now, in the opioid situation, much like the firearms situation, you know, you, the public right was, well, you have increased uh, costs for the police, EMT, hospitals, um, decrease in property value, because you don't really want to live in a neighborhood where there's opioid people around or, or gang, crim uh, violent criminal gangs around. Uh, but with the, uh, the um, COVID-19, that, that was significantly less clear. And also, uh, for example, with the Smithfield plant in Milan, it literally, it's not like it's in the middle of town. I mean, it's a pretty isolated area. Now, the counter argument to that from the plaintiff's side would be, yeah, but I mean, it's a virus. So it's a public nuisance because if any of our workers that we represent um, catch a virus, they can spread it. And now it's a public nuisance. I mean, okay. I suppose that's true, but if you do that, then uh, I, you're going to have to sue public nuisance for the common flu or the common cold or whatever. I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of places where you can stretch that. Thank you for that question. Um, the next one is: How does the fact that some states are decriminalizing drug possession affect calling the drug a public nuisance? Yeah, that's. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a policy question that really the judiciary is, is ill-equipped to handle. And I, there have been some judges in the past on public nuisance suits, not necessarily opioid suits, that have said, you know, this really isn't for the judiciary. And uh, we've had uh, uh, many smart thinkers, you know, John Malcolm from Heritage and myself have said that, uh, you know, that this really is a policy issue that should be addressed by the the, the state legislatures and the governors, not really the, the judiciary. I mean, that's insane. So, but I would say this, just be, I mean, for example, California, I mean, <laughs> this, this is a pretty open state when it comes to drugs. I, I don't mean just marijuana. I mean, I mean like pretty much everything. So in, in terms of the lack of enforcement, uh, if you're just personally using it. I mean, San Francisco has an open air needle exchange area, I, I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you, but it, that doesn't, that doesn't, that certainly is not going to affect the municipalities or the, uh, or the plant securities from suing. So I would say the drug legalization, buckets. Thank you for that question as well. Um, our next one is, does product liability law work as a solution for the opioid epidemic when many states have safe harbors for pharmaceuticals, which expressly prohibit litigation? Well, so that's what I was saying about it being a policy issue. You know, that, <laughs> that yeah, if, if at some point the state must have thought, you know, hey, uh, we don't really want to be going after com companies 
that produce legal, highly regulated products. If they really want to go after them, they can amend the law. Uh, it's really up to the legislature and the governor, not the, uh, not the state judiciary. Uh, the other issue is the fact that you have, that this public nuisance stuff is just stretched way beyond what it should be. This ain't it. I mean, I'm sorry, this is not it. You know, if you have a factory that's dumping sewage, if you have a, 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 a abandoned property that's being used as a crack house, or whatever, a gambling den or whatever. I mean, yes, you know, definitely. Or, I mean, uh, people have tried in the past to sue construction companies because they were paving a road. Now, they weren't doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They were doing it because the this, this state of X contracted with them to do it. But they sued anyway, based on a public nuisance. Now, in, that, in those cases, they were able to raise a defense, hey, you can't, you guys can't sue us. We, we wouldn't have done this except for the state. So forget about it. And those cases were dismissed. That's still significant litigation costs, I might add. Now, certain, certain opioid companies and pharmacies did try to raise it. In other words, we're so heavily regulated that we might as well be considered state, a state actor. That those, those arguments didn't fly. Um, I'm not, and I'm, I myself am not particularly sympathetic to that argument. Just because you're regulated doesn't mean you're a state actor. But I am sympathetic to the fact that the, the whole concept of public nuisance has been, uh, has been flipped. Because where we are right now, pretty much anything can be a public nuisance. And as I've read to you, there are certain states where it literally says anything. That makes you uncomfortable. Um, going off that, unfortunately, we only have time for about one more question, but assuming a legitimate need to regulate nuisance behaviors, what might a revised public nuisance statute look like? Well, I hope you mean at the, at the state level. Um, but yes, if we're a, a revised public nuisance statute, uh, should just go back to the original understanding and the original meaning. I'm talking about like Edward III. Uh, meaning of public nuisance, where it's, it's, not, it's not a way that the plaintiff's attorneys can make an end run around, the, around properly pleading a product defect or liability case or having the proper evidence, uh, submitting the proper evidence, at least enough to survive a motion to dismiss or demur that, uh, that there are that, that the defendants are actually responsible for their behavior. This whole business of aggregate evidence is very dangerous, very dangerous. And it's not, I don't think it's healthy for the, for the legal system, the litigation system. So I think if, if the states were to make it very clear, I mean, one easy way is to tie it to real property. Now, I will say this, the Oklahoma trial judge did say <laughs> He was afraid to be flipped, which he was anyway, so too bad. But he's, he tried to tie it to real property in the Oklahoma case, Johnson Johnson case, by saying, yeah, Johnson Johnson sent their reps to pass out pamphlets and talk to doctors at their offices and their homes, homes in Oklahoma. So there's a real property tie, and therefore that's the public nuisance. That's not, come on, that. That ain't it. Everybody knows that's not it. So, um, but I very much appreciate all of you joining us. 
I hope you all learned something and found it useful and at least moderately amusing. And, uh, but I, I hope, although I did joke around from time to time, I will say this is a very serious legal issue, the overexpansion of public nuisance. And as we've already seen from the COVID-19 cases, it's gonna continue on with different industries and different claims. And I just, I, I'm concerned that unless there's some serious pushback uh, from the judiciary and also from the state legislatures and governors, that uh, it's just gonna get worse. But thank you very much, I appreciate it. Thank you. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I wanna thank our expert for the benefit of his valuable time and expertise today. And I wanna thank our audience for joining and participating. We also welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. As always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming teleforum calls and virtual events. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.